morning, everyone. Hopefully you had a, a good week. I had a very good week. I found two pairs of lost glasses. One of them was inside the crock pot, inside the cupboard, in the box that the crock pot came in. It's like a magic trick. Yesterday, I did a wedding, and I put on a suit I haven't worn since last year, October or something. I found my glasses in the pocket. So if you felt like that we haven't been making good eye contact lately, um, it's probably because I couldn't tell where your eyes were. And so just expect some blazing eye contact this morning, because I can see perfectly. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time in the service, I'd like to invite you to uh, read from the scriptures with me. I have uh, prepared some thoughts and challenges for you, hopefully, um, that would encourage you this week to um, live a life honoring to God. As a community, we've been studying the life of King Saul and the life of King David as it's recorded in 1 Samuel, which is like the ninth book of the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with that. And so we're going to continue to seek after uh, God and how he is revealed this morning through the story of King David and King Saul. I say that intentionally, how God is revealed through their story, because that's what we're doing. This isn't just merely a history book that has very compelling stories of historical figures. This is bigger than that. This book is about God, is revealing to us who he is, what he is like. And then from that, we start to see how people have responded and interacted with him. And from that, we start to ask questions about how then shall we live. I find that um, looking for God in these stories sometimes is easier than others. Like the story that we uh, read last week, David and Goliath. I mean, it's very easy to see who the good guy is and who the bad guy is in that story. It's very easy to see the champion in that and be able to look at God and say that you are like David for me. You are like the guy that rescues me courageously with all odds against him. And there are other times where it's a little bit more difficult to figure out what's going on here. Now, I'm a third-generation pastor, And so I think that means that this Sunday morning marks like the one millionth church service that I've been a part of. (laughs) And I really, I mean, I would say that because I don't like it. I love it. I I grew up in a very traditional church. There's Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning family worship service, Sunday night. You guys know it's Sunday night. We're back in the house. Uh, Wednesday night, Bible study, youth group. I actually lived in the church building. There's a, they used to call it the parsonage, okay? And we would live in this barn that had been turned into a place for a family to live. Kind of like a stable, no, I'm just joking. Um, And it's connected to the church's uh, building uh, in my hometown. And so I, I only say that because when I reflect back on how I've treated the Bible and how I've treated the stories in the Bible, what, one big theme of my childhood is, is that I used to focus primarily on the stories that were easy to see God as the champ. 
the David and Goliath story, that was easy to see, this, this huge moment of nobility and bravery, this, this really courageous story of the young man that did the right thing. And then the next week, I, I, it was another story like that. I'd get Noah, you know, you'd get Moses, you'd get David, and all of these things. I started to think, that's really the point of the Bible, are those types of stories. That then started to infiltrate into my life a worldview of how a Christian ought to always be. You always have to perform in this way like David did. Every moment of every day had the expectation that I had to um, do. I remember praying at lunch at school was something I really didn't want to do. Because no one else prayed before their lunch. But I had such a performance there that my grandfather told me, if you do not pray for your food, it will rot in your stomach. (laughs) And I started to think, I must, I got to do this. And prayer before lunch turned into this Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thing where if I didn't pray, I was bowing and I had to walk into the furnace. And it was like this, it's just lunch, man. And I started to have that pressure of all of these high mountaintop experiences had to be every single day for me. And I started to think, uh, you know, I was about 17 years old, and I said to my dad, this is not sustainable. This whole thing, nobody's actually doing this. Nobody's actually living the way that the Bible portrays life ought to be. And my dad said to me, have you ever even read the Bible? And I said, I know I know it's in the Bible. And he's like, there's a difference between knowing about stories in the Bible and actually engaging and reading what's in there. And I started to find that there are many more stories uh, that are very much close to, closer to what I was feeling in my actual life. There were many more stories uh, of people struggling and wrestling and failing I didn't have a category for failing before. I didn't have a category for boring or mundane before. I didn't have a category for people who are looking at life and it's not clear to see this opaque, uh, you know, just foggy direction and try and move forwards and, and doubt and struggle. And it started to minister to me to see that there were, yes, times where uh, drastic measures had to be taken. There were times when uh, big moments needed to, to happen. But there are many times where God is uh, giving to us stories that say, I know what this is like. Can you imagine having a Bible worldview that was just full of stories that had uh, all these big events and, and and you have a Monday and normal life most of the time. We have a Bible that says, I know about those times. I know about those struggles. I know about uh, the feelings that you have when you're in an ordinary situation. And I praise God for that. And all that to be said, the chapter that we're dealing with today, you know, is a very common situation after a David and Goliath moment. It's this life cycle of failure uh, or this, this beginning of, of an opportunity for Saul to do the right thing. And uh, just like in real life, as, after something amazing happens, we oftentimes justify doing the wrong thing. 
So please read with me from 1 Samuel chapter 18. And if you'd like to stand for the reading of God's word. Hopefully that all made sense. It's kind of a balance to uh, what we're reading here. I'm going to start reading um, at verse 6. 1 Samuel 18 and verse 6. When the men were returning home after David killed the Philistine, okay, Goliath, the women came out from all the towns in Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with joyful songs and tambourines and lutes. Flutes? Lutes? I don't, I'm not sure what a lute is. As they danced, they sang. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So the very words of God. You may have a seat. As we're learning about these first kings of Israel, you may be wondering, why haven't they had a king yet? What, why, what have they been waiting for in order to, to, to have a king? Well, they have had a king. God. And God has been raising up men and women periodically to, uh, and empowering normal men and women to do the right thing. We call them judges. They, the, the Israel is just now entering into a new season. For a few hundred years, they've been in this season we call the, the time of the judges. Shoftim in Hebrew. These are men and women who were looking at injustice happening in, in their time and saying no. If, if anyone likes westerns, this Judges should be the place that you are an expert on. Because the time of the judges is the Wild West of Israel. You know, you've got the Jesse James. You know, you've got the, the, the everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And then you'd have people, the Bohannons, stepping up and, and stepping in. So, uh, you've got Gideon. You've got Deborah, you've got Shamgar, farmers, you've got random left-handed people, you've got all these normal people that God is raising up and saying, I want, uh, I want to empower you to do the right thing. And this is a great reflection of God and who he wants to work with. He wants to work with normal people that want to do the right thing and empower them. And what happens is, Israel says, no, we want to try our hand at putting somebody in, in charge of us. And they start to think, we're going to get this handsome, capable, uh, tall man to lead us. And they start to make judgments based on outward appearance and based on the fact that they think that they can uh, do this on their own. So it's no surprise in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel where God says... Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. So give them what they want. 
And that becomes kind of the, the persona of the rule of Saul. It's a guy who is embodying the, uh, the heart of Israel at the time. We're going to do it our way. Saul continues to fight against the way of God. He never admits wrongdoing. He's always trying to justify himself. And that becomes kind of the story of this king. Parallel to the story of God's king. Again, a normal shepherd boy, he raises up and says, I think that you can do this. And David begins by being empowered by God to be the shepherd king of Israel. These two stories are so intertwined that for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, we start to see them interacting with each other. And today marks a day in the story where they end up actually beginning this this hatred, uh, well, where Saul begins this hatred, pro- hateful process towards David. So we should pay attention to this, because this marks a very long and bitter and painful journey between these two individuals. So what happens with this song? I'm reminded of a story in my childhood where my dad tells me about it. I can't really remember it. I was too young. I couldn't read yet. Which, I don't know how old that would be for me. Okay, so... Maybe a little more than the typical. Uh, all right, so I, we're at a Chinese restaurant. I crack open my fortune cookie, ask my dad to read it. And my dad says, oh, you're going to like this one. You will have a romantic experience shortly. And I, I stood up from the table, and I walked out of the restaurant. I've always been kind of dramatic like that. <laughs> my dad goes out to the parking lot, sees me standing there, and he's like, Danny, what's the matter? And then I say... You know, Dad, I don't really appreciate being called shorty. (laughs) You'll have a romantic experience shortly, okay? Shortly, not shorty. I have a lot of sympathy for people who have misunderstandings. These women start singing this song. Saul has slayed his thousands. David is ten thousands. And Saul immediately takes offense to it. And we think, well, that's, just, that's rightfully so. But I'm not so sure that that's true. I mean, why would these women be condescending on their king? Why would they think to come out to their king and say, uh, and smack him in the face when he gets home? I mean, this isn't a freedom of, a, of speech America where we can just slander all of our leaders at any given moment. This is the ancient Near East. You could get killed for this kind of thing. Maybe it was the most courageous thing that these women have ever done. Or maybe Saul misread the fortune cookie. Consider that these women might be using um, a type of Hebraic poetic structure that was common for their day. So, for example, I'm sure you guys have seen this elsewhere in your Bible. My favorite chapter, Deuteronomy, has it. Does anybody know what it is? I knew you were going to say six. Now, 32. Moses' song, chapter 32, Deuteronomy. You know the verse. One. How could one send a thousand to flight? Two, ten thousand, if not their rock had misled them or been against them. That's the same kind of structure. Or I'm sure some of you's favorite psalm is 91. Does anybody like Psalm 91? Everybody loves Psalm 91. There's a verse in Psalm 91, very popular. Uh, though 
A thousand may fall at my side or your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Now, if Saul was to interpret that verse in Psalm 91, if somebody was to sing that to him, he would say, A thousand may fall at my side, 10,000 at my right hand. What is this that they say about my right hand being so much more protected than my left? Outrageous. This is, this is just not what's being communicated. Is that not a good example? Here's, okay, so is, imagine if we're at a softball game, my team wins, we start singing the timeless song from Queen, We Are the Champions, and everybody joins in and says, no time for losers. And I stop the song and say, wait a minute. I feel like some of you guys might be calling me a loser. That's just not what's going on. These women are just singing this song that amplifies the victory of these two men. So if, so if Saul is misunderstanding this, what's going on with that? Why does he care so much that he's referenced with David uh, when they're getting high fives? Well, to my shame, I also have a problem sometimes when other people get credit. I mean, what happens in you when you're a part of something and somebody else gets more credit than you? I mean, David deserves a high five here. Saul deserves nothing. (laughs) He sat there for 40 days watching the Philistines uh, taunt them. And David was there for a few hours and took care of business. He deserves a high five. He deserves uh, people singing about him. Why would Saul be so jealous that he would say, I need some of the credit. I need more credit than David. Well, it's very similar to things that happen inside of me. You know, for example, my wife does such a good job at creating a restful, beautiful space for us to live in in our house. And I'll be honest, I've had times where people come over and they say, wow, this is such a beautifully decorated home. Chelsea does such a good job with this. And I'll think, well, whoa, whoa, wait a second. I mean, I, I, vac- I took the trash. I mean, I'm a part of this. I mean, we're more of, you know, I am the head of the house here, so shouldn't I get some credit for this? Even though I know I have done nothing for that to happen. Why do I need to do that? You know, somebody will come and be like, you know, Pastor Rod had such a great sermon last week. It was so powerful. And I'll be like thinking inside, well, I mean, we're part of a team, you know. We're all, I mean, we all study together. I mean, it's, it's, it's a shared thing, okay. Why? Why do I need to see some credit come my way? If this is only me, um, then forgive this this section or whatever, but if this is also something that you struggle with, needing credit when credit isn't due, maybe you're dealing with something that is just, that has been going on for centuries. I mean, Saul was struggling with this, and it goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Remember what they said, let us build a tower to the heavens so that we might build a name for ourselves. Make our name great that we were able to reach God with this building, this this structure. We too are very tempted with that same thing. Let us build a name for ourselves. Let's use every opportunity that we can get to have our name be made great. If this is you, you will struggle because it will never be tall enough. 
You'll never be able to reach the maximum height where your name is, is, is the greatest. You will never have enough likes on your uh, social media. You'll never have enough friends or followers. You'll never have enough high fives or pats on the backs. It will never be enough credit to you. And maybe today's a day where you start to look in the mirror and say, I need, I need to become less and he needs to become more. Maybe today's a day where you say, I'm not going to be a disciple of Saul. I'm going to be for the king, for God's king. Maybe you need to change your name. Maybe you need to, uh, st- to, to do things more anonymously. Maybe your right hand knows a little too much of what your left hand is doing. But consider becoming a person who is so much more interested with raising out the name of God and raising out the name of Jesus that you, you'd be okay with getting confused with uh, somebody not giving you credit for something. Be somebody that's so interested and concerned with Jesus being known in your life that it doesn't really matter how much your involvement was or not. What if we started to become a people that says, I'm not going to be a Babylonian. I'm not going to build a tower to me, but I'm going to build up Jesus' name. If, I, if my name fades, so be it. Now I can get famous doing it. Probably. I mean, you, you might get famous doing it, and then the opposite effect will <laughs> probably happen, but... Um, It's going to be very difficult. But the elders at the end of the story in Revelation, you know, they have these crowns. And I want to be the type of person that takes the crown off that would attract attention and fame and glory to me. And they they cast it towards the Lamb. And they say, all of the shiny things that would be pointing towards me, I'm now going to push closer and closer to him so that people can see him with the shiny things. I don't draw a line very often, but I'm going to draw a line here and say it's okay to get credit. But to be obsessed with getting credit and to desire getting credit is something to really watch out for. Cast your crown towards the Lamb. Moving on, the next day in verse 10, An evil spirit from God forced itself upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house, and David was playing his harp, as usual. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, with David, but had left Saul. This next section are three attempts to take out David. Three attempts to take David's life. The spear, the promotion, and the bride price. The spear, the promotion, and the bride price. Well, the, the, the Jewish sages of old argue that these three things are passive aggressive. These three things are, are done um, by Saul so that he uh, doesn't get in trouble for trying to actively kill uh, David, which I get that. I get that for the bride price, and I get that for the promotion. I mean, putting a teenager in charge of your, your army and then putting him into battle is just asking for trouble. And also, uh, dangling your daughter in front of him and saying, you must go to battle again in order to have her, is putting him in harm's way. 
We have a hard time buying that the throwing of the spear is, is passive-aggressive. I mean, it's very kind of like, I mean, I'm throwing this at you right now, you know? I mean, one time maybe there was a mistake, but two times he throws it at him. It's like, and I get it. They're dealing with that. David doesn't make a big, um, he doesn't seem to be affected by it. David doesn't have this moment where he's like, whoa, whoa, Saul's trying to kill me. He continues to serve Saul. So I'm just trying to think creatively about what's going on inside of there, you know? I mean, perhaps David is playing his harp, and Saul's having a fit of rage, and Saul ends up throwing at David uh, one of his spears, right? And maybe David thought that he deserved it, because the whole point of David being in there was to calm Saul down, right? And so he didn't, you know, he didn't work, maybe, okay? Maybe, I think I'm more... uh, um, likely to believe that it was one of those moments where David was playing his harp and Saul saw him and said, wait, wait, David, don't move. There's a spider right above your head. And I'm going to throw the spear and get it. And then he misses, wait, David, no, it's on your back. Just hold still. And he misses again, which explains why the author goes so quickly to say in the next verse, The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Obviously, David throws one stone at a giant and takes him down. Saul, the champion of Israel, cannot hit a man right in front of him with two spears. I'd say the Lord has moved on from this person. (laughs) Unfortunately for the people around us, our aim is much more precise. Sure, we throw spears of our own. And they're a lot sharper than any of Saul's. And they penetrate a lot deeper in the hearts and wound people around us. We don't throw physical spears at people. We just use our words. Sarcasm that's in the family nowadays. That's allowed for children to see the parents that that just tries to to cut. To cut off the, the conversation. Or that tries to cut somebody down with, with, between spouses when, when you start to say things like, surprise, surprise. Dan forgot to take you know, this or do that. Or, or Charles forgot to do this or do that. And we start to cut each other down. Backhanded comments. We use them in a way to hurt people. Words can be some of the most painful thing. Whoever started the the children's rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, was lying. It's false. I think of something that happened in my generation. Um, Well, we all kind of remember this. You know, back in the 90s, there was this girl who fell in love with her boss. Which happens. He's a married man. This is not a good thing, but that happens. And then her life was completely taken apart because her boss happened to be the president of the United States who reduced her and her relationship with him to a sentence that ended with that woman. Monica Lewinsky has shared about the devastation that happened in her life for being one of the first people to experience cyberbullying. All of a sudden, all over the world, there's, there's people that are speaking out against her, using words to cut her down. They don't even know her. 
She recounts that she had to go into hiding for 10 years, not speaking publicly or doing anything in the public eye, having to go live with her parents. And her parents even say that there were many times where they would not allow her to even take a shower with the door closed because they were afraid that she was going to take her own life. Because of words. There are many more stories like this that we allow words to be said that will tear people down. I love how this story here starts with Saul prophesying. Don't think prophet as in he's just sitting there telling the future, you know, like this crystal ball moment. More of the prophet uh, role in the Hebrew scriptures is speaking truth to power. Somebody that's speaking against injustice or, or calling out hypocrisy. And the more I think about this scenario, the more I think about how in my life, how easy it is to speak truth to power and then follow it with a spear. Many times I am guilty of speaking out against something and then throwing someone under the bus. Sure, I'll say I'm just shooting straight with you, but what I really mean is I'm shooting straight at you. What if we decided today that we are not going to let unwholesome talk come out of our mouths? That we're going to be a people who value words so much that we're going to try and speak encouragement and positivity in people's lives. That we're going to use words that heal rather than words that hurt. What if we were to follow God's example and, re- and reveal him through words? I mean, God is into words. I don't want anyone to feel condemned or like you can't speak anymore or anything like that. I want to give you permission to speak. I just want you to say things that line up with the testimony of Jesus. Remember what the angel said to John in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And the next time you want to speak out like that prophetic moment of this is an injustice. Or that in speaking truth to a, a corrupt system. Do the work ahead of time and think, how does the testimony of Jesus interact with that? How can I claim, proclaim the testimony of Jesus over this person and over this thing? How can I be that voice? Was the last time you, you believed the testimony of Jesus for somebody that didn't believe it themselves? And spoke that over your spouse and your family and your, and your neighbor and your presidential candidates and your president. You have a voice. The next uh, two things that happen, uh, verse 12 says, I was out of fear. Saul was afraid of David. He continues then to make David in charge of his army he promotes him and putting him in harm's way hoping that the the hand of the philistine will be against david instead of himself right you can see that in verse uh, 21 so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the philistine may be against him saul is hoping for the worst to happen he, he again does that with the bride price for Michal, his, his daughter who loved David. And I'll just cut to the, to the chase here. Uh, the bottom line is Saul is he's afraid, but what is he afraid of? 
This is the fear of loss that's happening here that's causing him to try and control the situation. The fear of loss can be very um, painful and difficult for us to, to, to deal with. What is he afraid of losing? Saul knows that his kingdom is, is being taken from him. His crown is being taken from him. And this is something that we all can connect with. The fear of losing uh, the power. The fear of losing control. The fear of losing something that validates you. And really, you have to ask yourself, do I trust the person that is getting it or not? If I'm afraid of losing control, it's a lot uh, safer of a move when I know that the person I'm giving control with is actually trustworthy. So I'll end with this, um, with this thought. There are a lot of um, parallels between Saul and, and me, and perhaps Saul and you. There are a lot of parallels between David and Jesus. But there's one thing that doesn't line up with David and Jesus. Is that Saul attempted to kill David but failed. But Jesus allowed for himself to be killed. And he did not run from it. He willfully went to the cross to teach us all about how trustworthy he is. About how much he loves us. When we're giving up our control daily to the Lord, we see him saying, I will do anything for you to be whole. I will do anything to, sh to show you value. So pray with me and consider um, these thoughts. Father in heaven, I just want to pray for people like Saul and like me who really are, are struggling to need affirmation and credit, who really want their name to be made great, teach, them, teach us all how that that's a trap and how that that's an unfulfilled life and how that will never be enough. And show us, I mean, speak deep into our hearts and say, you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. Speak into our hearts and say that it is finished. It really is finished. There's nothing that you can add to make your value more to God. Receive the testimony of Jesus over your life. Father, help us who cannot keep control of our mouths and encourage us to, to know that we have the power of life and death in our tongue. That a small rudder can move a large ship and a small fire can set, a, set ablaze an entire forest. Place inside of our hearts your affirming word so that that is what comes out of our mouths. Your word that we can receive in Christ, my son, whom I love, whom I'm well pleased. Place that deep inside of the hearts of, of, of those of us who are struggling with anything good to say and help us to, to make that the spear that we throw at people. Love, because we've been loved by you. And for those of us who are afraid of losing control, 
I just pray that you would continue to teach us about how trustworthy that you are. That you would be willing to do anything to make us whole. And that we can follow you, Savior, like a shepherd. We repent from being like Saul and trying to be the king of our life and being against you as the king. We turn away from that and we now are following you. Let, the kingdom, let your kingdom um, come out of this, this moment where we're turning away and turning towards you. Let your kingdom come in our life.